Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard to beat. Where are you coming from in this one? Your 100% essential download. Jim White and Simon Jordan. You let this get out of control. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Hi, this is Sam Matterface. I was sitting in for Jim today alongside Simon and Danny Murphy. We discussed Mason Mount's transfer from Chelsea to Manchester United and his goodbye video. Forest Green Rovers have named Hannah Dingley as their new caretaker manager. We asked if it was a seminal moment for women managing in men's football. Plus, Stephen Cockburn from Amnesty International talks about Stephen Gerrard becoming the latest high-profile move into Saudi Arabian football. Mason Mount... He recorded a video last night uh, for Chelsea fans to explain why he was leaving the club. He said that um, he thought they deserved more than a written statement. He didn't go into the uh, details of why he was leaving the club. He didn't actually reference the relations had become strained after issues with the original contract offer. He tried to play the diplomat and said that this was the right step uh, for his career. Was he right to do it? Well, I always think you, you, it's more personable to get on a video and speak than actually just send out a <clears throat> generic statement you're damned if you do and damned if you don't in some ways as soon as you start speaking people analyze every word of what you said the tone you say it you know what you do say what you don't say so you you know it's you're always leaving yourself open for criticism but yeah i think it was the right thing to do okay let's hear it hi chelsea fans given the speculation over the last six months this may not come as a surprise to you but it doesn't make it any easier to tell you that i've made the decision to leave chelsea i feel we deserve more than just a written statement So I wanted to tell you directly how grateful I've been for all of your support over the last 18 years. I know some of you won't be happy with my decision, but it's what's right for me at this moment in my career. I joined Chelsea when I was six years old and we've been through a lot together. Winning the Youth Cup, my Player of the Year awards, the Super Cup, the Club World Cup, and of course the unforgettable night when we won the Champions League. I want to say thank you to the Academy Jim and Neil for being so influential to me from such a young age. The managers I've worked under, Frank, Thomas and Graham. The backroom staff, the, the unsung heroes of Cobham. All of my teammates over the years that have become my brothers, my family for the continuous of love and support. And most importantly, you guys for sticking with me throughout. Wish you all the best. 
Um, what, what he didn't say during that uh, video, which you obviously clearly were not Here he is, impressed with, yeah, um, is that uh, he had at one point, Simon, virtually agreed a contact uh, with Chelsea last winter on less money than he's going to be on at Manchester United. And yep. that was retracted by Chelsea. And he had been one of the lowest paid players in the squad all the time that he'd been in the first team squad, despite Get being a better agent than player of the year twice. Um, he has now. <laughs> Some players were on treble the money that he was uh, Get playing a better with. Agent, then. Get more value. It's up to you. You're a big boy. Well, that's exactly why he's ended up having to go to Manchester United. And that's fine. That's the nature of the beast. I'm assuming that because because he's made 126 appearances with Chelsea, we'll hear a video from Callum Hudson-Odoi because he's made 129 appearances when he goes out the door. It's incidental. He played for Chelsea. He did a job. I don't know how many Chelsea fans are going to be sitting there thinking that that gives them any feeling of engagement, validation or interest. If people want to use it, certain people will weaponise it against the owner and say, this is all wrong, this is an owner doesn't know what he's doing and allowing players to leave the football club. This is just the nature of football. People exactly. stay and they leave and yep. Chelsea, from the bottom line of producing an academy player, have monetised it, taken 55 million quid, shoved it straight to profit and we'll see what Pochettino does next year. And mm. the There is a section of Chelsea fans though, Danny, that aren't happy with him, they've turned against him. Is that just the tribal nature of football? Yep. A bit like Simon says, it's transactional and you just have to accept it. Or is it wrong to do is it anger that they perceive that he's turned his back on the club, but in truth he feels like the club turned the back on him? There's always going to be a variation of opinion in a, a huge football club's following that when a, when, a trans, when a player goes that is valued and a player that most people like. So, yeah, I mean, you're always going to get... A, you're never going to get a general... Well, there are occasions where the whole... Consensus. The consensus is well done, on you go, we support you. Like Declan Rice, I don't think there's a West Ham fan alive. Harry Kane, perhaps. Well, no, I don't think no know about that. But no, if 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 Tottenham, if Terry Kane were to leave Tottenham, besides the unreasonable Tottenham fans, and who if you want to if you want to placate the unreasonable fans, then you'll spend all your days doing nothing but placating them. But if Harry Kane were to leave Tottenham, the majority of Tottenham fans would say we're sorry to see him go, but we'd never begrudge it. Well, they might so if he went to Chelsea, possibly. But so just, it's where he ends but, up. But, but, that's the case. <clears> but, but the bottom line with with this guy is that. The majority of fans, I think it's an unreasonable expectation. It's a stupid, immature, unnecessary reaction from fans. From if a player signed a contract and that contract has run its full course mm. and he's done his job mm. and they've done their job by him, then that's the end of the relationship and that's the end of the loyalty perspective. And characterising loyalty in any other framework is just stupid, sentimental nonsense. Because as long as you've got from your players exactly what they were contracted to do, everybody has a right to change their mind... Everybody has a right to move on, and football is no different from any other profession besides the over-egging of the pudding, which comes with the emotion, which is a valuable part of football because otherwise people wouldn't get half the returns that they get. And I don't look at it as a necessity. I think it's a packaged product. Like, we criticise Harry Maguire for coming out and, 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 and saying things that were driven by Manchester United's PR machine. We are seeing the trends. We saw this from their PR guy about a year, 18 months ago, their head of social media, saying, we follow the trends of what people want to hear, and then we get the players to steer into that narrative. This is just packaging Mason Mount on the way out so that he makes sure that he ticks boxes because Mason Mount is a commodity. He's an individual that can monetize himself through brand awareness, brand association, so he puts his best foot forward. It has no more substance than that. And mm. if anyone thinks it does, then they're silly. Well, I think also, as well, the majority of Chelsea fans who are reasonably bright are going to always look at a player that leaves and think, what did he contribute? You could never, ever 
say anything about his application and dedication to the job on and off the pitch. He was, you know, in never a problem. And on the pitch, his work ethic's unbelievable. So in that respect, his overall contribution's been a positive one. So you're not going to get many disgruntled. I don't think there's going to be this big outpouring of negativity towards him. So why are Chelsea allowing him to leave? Is that valuable? Well, because every football club brings in people within the club who, Clearly they don't think he is. Who, value, who value players differently at different stages. Somebody can be the best player one year, which he was, and one player of the year twice, I think, and then all of a sudden he's not in the team because people in the club have changed their mind. So therefore you become less of a commodity and you move on. And someone else somewhere else values you more, makes you feel good, and wants you as part of their project and part of their team and their success, and then you move on. Football is just that way. The world's most dangerous download. Outspoken with White and Jordan. From the world's biggest sports radio station, Talk Sport. Forest Green Rovers have named Hannah Dingley as their new caretaker boss, um, making her the first woman to manage a professional men's team in English football. She first joined the club in 2019 to take charge of the academy. And when that happened, she spoke to Danny Murphy and Natalie Sawyer on this show four years ago. You know, it's the best person for the job. And in fairness to the club, they've been really keen of highlighting that, that, um, you know, I wasn't appointed as a, a gimmick or for any other reason, bar my qualifications, experience and what I could bring to the academy. So, um, you know, that's been a really good thing from the club. Um, but it's good to be out there and, again, being a role model for other coaches and to show that there are other pathways for female coaches, that it doesn't always have to be in the female game. There are other opportunities for them. I'll be honest, there's been a lot of jobs I've applied for that I've not got an interview for. Yeah, um, I but I feel probably I was qualified enough to do so. Um, but at Forest Green, you know, there was a transparent process. You know, there's a two-stage interview. I had to coach. I had to do a presentation. I had to speak to the chairman and to a panel. So it was, a, again, a very transparent process, which I think it would be better if we saw more of that throughout football. Um, when I was still playing, because women's football usually on a Sunday. Um, I always sort of, my pathway was through men's football. I coached in non-league men's football for a number of years, which I tell you, if you can do that, you can do anything. Yeah. Um, and <laughs> again, then I took opp opportunities up in um, Boys Academy. So I had a spell at Notts County. Uh, I worked at Burton Albion, um, mm. first part-time then as a full-time role. Um, so then that was sort of my pathway. Um, and I suppose the frustration was, you know, I had, it wasn't just the qualifications. I had that experience in the men's game and often still didn't get the opportunities, you know, for other roles. Tonight she takes charge of the first pre-season game at Melksham Town. Pro-licence holder who Dale Vince says was a natural choice to take over after the sacking of Duncan Ferguson. Could this be a gateway appointment? Possibly, yeah. I mean, Simon and I have always talked on this show about, you know, best person for the job. Um, equal opportunities, not equal outcomes, and and she sounds like the best person at the football club who's in the right position to take over. While obviously we don't know why Duncan's gone, so yeah, we'll we'll see how she does. I mean, it's um, it's something that's inevitably going to happen more. I think it's going to, you know, another ten years we'll have more women in men's uh, men's football's manager jobs. Um, and then of course the challenge will then be is to succeed and open the pathway or gateway, as you call it, even more so. What's it say about English football that this is the first time it's happened? Um, not a lot, really. It says that uh, Del Vince, who has a, a certain view on society, has seen someone that's within the confines of his business and he thinks she's worthy of an opportunity. If we want to make it about um, an opportunity... I don't think it's inevitable that we'll see more women in positions of authority inside dugouts. I think if they're good enough, then they'll get the opportunities. And the question is, is how do those opportunities manifest themselves? When we get silly conversations about Emma Hayes 
leaping from Chelsea's women to managing a Premier League club, I think those conversations are silly. Mm. And the sentiment should be, like anybody else, there's a vast difference between women's football and men's football. Coaching is coaching, but there's still a, a difference between the physicality, the psychological profile of men. It's a, it's a difference. It's a fact. We don't need to equalise society. Otherwise, you'd have more women bricklayers and more women plumbers if you wanted to make everything equal. What you need to do is give everybody an opportunity to have the talent pool get determine the outcomes. Now, Del Vence brought in Duncan Ferguson, which was probably the most uncomfortable interview I think I'd ever seen where Duncan was trying to understand the values of vegan pies and and Dell's view on climate crisis and God knows whatever else uh, Swampy's dad thinks he should be talking about. But in this instance, I think it's an interesting appointment because it gives somebody an opportunity mm. to prove the fact that women... You know, I'm not looking... I don't have this major burden, burdening aspiration to see more men manage women's netball teams. And I don't spend my time consumed by that. And I'm not consumed by the necessity for there to be women involved in men's football. I've seen some of the most formidable people in football be women. Karen being one, Lorraine Rogers being another, Heather Rabbits being another, Brendan Dean being another, Lorraine Johnson being incredibly formidable. So there is a space and place for people of, of capability. There are barriers to cross because yeah. dressing rooms are very different environments and we can all go and watch any given Sunday and see Cameron Diaz bowling around the dressing room but there is a difference of approach and barriers to be overcome and rightly, rightly so to some extent. But I think this is a great opportunity for her, and I really do hope that she takes it. And it makes and it's not about her being a woman manager; it's about her being a Man manager. manager yeah. it not it should, it should never have been about Sean Massey being a female linesman or referee. It should have just been about her capabilities in that space. But you're inevitably going to get resistance and people who who struggle with change. And I've I've been a bit like that as I've grown up. Um, and it's only when things happen and evolve and, and you do get success that people's minds will change. But I don't think people should be vilified for saying, coming on, I heard people talking this morning and, you know, then getting hammered on air because they were saying, I wouldn't want a woman in charge of my football. Everyone's entitled to their opinion. That's the democracy we live in. I'm, I'm actually... I've, my viewpoint's changed. I've got older and wiser. When I played... I could honestly say on here now that I would have been uncomfortable. But now I look at it differently. Because things do change. Because when you first coming through at Liverpool, for example, after being a crew, it probably was around that period where there was scepticism and suspicion about non-players becoming managers. Exactly. And that, that still happens when a manager walks through a door who used to play and didn't. Unless they've had really good um, recent results as a manager, your, your first instinct is to think, what do you know ahead of me? You know, that's the arrogance and the ego of football. But Simon made a good point. And, and, and the thing that actually is worth a conversation and needs opening up is what, what are the problems? So when, when, if women do get the chance, which we think they will, and, and the gateway opens, what are going to be the differences and the problems they're going to face? Because that's going to be the challenges. Not even from a coaching and football point of view. It's the aggression. It's the passion. It's the horrendous moments in changing rooms that, okay, some, some really good leaders, men and women, would say they wouldn't get themselves in those positions. I can tell you it's very difficult not to. I'm talking about physical altercations. I'm talking about the worst type of verbal exchanges with managers and coaches that I've, I could tell you, I wouldn't be able to say on air. But maybe the presence of a woman in the dressing room takes that temperature down. 
Or maybe there's a necessity for that temperature. Maybe. Maybe there's a well, space there is and a place for everything. You've got to be able to have that switch. You've got to be able to have that. This is an emotional business. And whilst I criticised the fans earlier on for being over-emotional about Mason Mount and being unrealistic in their expectations, motion drives football. And you need to have that temperature. You need to have that intensity. But there's emotion in women's football. I'm not suggesting that there isn't, but there's a different level of, 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 of response from men than there is from women. That's why we have a simple fact. If you listen to Jordan Peterson, you and I both do the same thing, and we understand that men are more disagreeable, so as a result of it, they've become more successful. And the reasons why women, certain women, have become more successful because they're as disagreeable as men. And it's a part and parcel of the component parts of how men and women are fundamentally different. I would be interested to see how coaching staff will be put back to get put together because it would be fascinating if you're going to go down the route of and all women coaching staff alongside the, the appointment of a manager, that's a female. But I'm more interested in looking at Hannah as a football manager Absolutely. that can replicate success at Forest Green Rovers than Hannah as somebody that should not have to carry the unnecessary burden of being a game changer. Hard-edged, hard-nosed, hard to beat. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. The difference uh, being made at the moment is uh, the the trail from Premier League to Saudi Arabia. Um, yesterday on the show, we, we discussed the fact that maybe it might be time for uh, players and managers making that journey to come out and make some statements about the human rights record of that country. You said that that wasn't worth doing. Um, no, I said that it was unrealistic to expect them to do it. Of course, for those that want to agenda rise that particular side of those environments, of course it'll be worth doing. But I also said, let's get it characterised properly, that who are we in this part of the world to dictate to other parts of the world how their society evolves. Let's speak to Stephen Cockburn, who's Amnesty International's Head of Economic and Social Justice. Thanks for joining us. Hi there. Um, the UK, Amnesty UK and Economics Affairs Director Peter Frankenthal accused Saudi Arabia of putting their sports washing into overdrive and called on Stephen Gerrard to discuss the issue after moving 
to Saudi Arabia. Um, what, what do you think these players should be doing that have decided to make the trip uh, to the Middle East? Well, I mean, first of all, I think, you know, players do have every right to go and choose where, where they work. And, you know, Saudi clubs have a right to invest in their teams as well. But we have to see that it's not being naive that there is a bigger context and a bigger project going on, uh, which is the fact that Saudi Arabia has invested enormous amounts of money in sport, whether it's boxing, football, tennis, um, uh, you know, as part of a bigger geopolitical ambition, a part of trying to change the conversation away from its appalling human rights record, which is getting worse, not better. And, you know, for bigger projects like trying to host a, a future World Cup. So, you know, these, you know, while, while people have the, you know, Stephen Jared making his choice to go play there, that, that's his choice. But there is, of course, a choice about what, what, what players or managers do when they go there. Um, now, they could go and train and coach and, and try and improve Saudi football, which is a perfectly legitimate thing to do. It would mean a lot, I think, to, to families of, of dissidents in prison or others for issues to be raised in, in, in the way that they're able to do it. Um, but certainly, at a minimum, they need to be really careful about not becoming tools of the Saudi sports washing project, not becoming ambassadors and telling a, a story that is only one-sided or false. And so there's, it's, there's quite an important responsibility on that side for, for, for players to make sure they're not being used um, in a bigger project. And of course, it's a responsibility for us to, to keep talking about these, these issues as well. Yeah, I mean, I agree a lot with what was said there. I mean, there's a supposition on everybody's part that the main focus for the Middle East and money is to redirect people away from their outlooks, dispositions and, and human rights uh, vantage point. A lot of it is also about gaining access and repositioning themselves for different agendas like the commercialisation of that part of the world to be industrial hubs, the regeneration of those environments to be able to create economic relationships that go beyond oil and fossil fuel. So the, for the amnesties of the world, which is their job, and it's a godsend, to be honest with you, I think it's an unfair situation to expect and I think realistically, they're grown up enough, and I'm speaking for them, and they'll come in and correct me in a second if, they, if, if I'm wrong in my perception of it. It's an unrealistic perspective for, for someone to expect Stephen Gerrard to go out and work in a country and then spend his time commenting on um, what he sees over there or his disagreement with their human rights issues, because if he disagreed with it fundamentally in the first place, he wouldn't be there. What it does do is it's manner for heaven for Amnesty International because it will create media retention because big names going there, like Gerard, will keep us in mind that they're in the Middle East and then the conversation will be had by the people like Amnesty International who have the expertise to point their finger at the shortcomings, the failings and the challenges that these societies have. Do you want to come back on that? Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, Stephen Gerard does have a choice. There's, there's no doubt about it. And, you know, I think... As I said before, there's a there's a choice about not being used as well. So there's something he's got to be very careful about in the way that, that he manages it. It would mean a lot for, for players to, to speak out. I mean, I think the, the, there is a big, serious, a really important growth in over the last few years in sports people. And that could be Marcus Rashford, could be Colin Kaepernick, Naomi Osaka. Really sports people with huge reach, huge power speaking out about important issues. And it's, it's really changed because I think a lot of people do listen. So there is a responsibility with this platform as well. Now, I don't necessarily expect Stephen Gerrard to, you know, um, be protesting at every game he's managing. I don't, I don't think that is realistic. But it is realistic for us to ask the questions of those players and managers who are going across there. How, are you, how easy do you think it would be for Stephen Gerrard to, to espouse those views, though, bearing in mind that his paymaster will now be obviously part of the, the Saudi Arabian government? It, it, if he wanted to protest about it, surely he just wouldn't have gone there rather than... Than, than, than going there and then being told that he is expected to, to protest. Because he's, he, he's likely not to do that, he's is He's not going to. 
It's not going to happen. So, I mean, I think this is part. This is part of the discussion that the, the players and managers need to have about when they're when they're doing these contracts. None of us know his contract about whether there's something in there about about not speaking on social and political issues. It's possible there is. I, I don't know. But they don't and need to have that, that conversation. If they don't hold your views, they don't need to have that conversation. You need to have that conversation. You can have that conversation by the very nature of high-profile British sports stars. I, I loathe the idea that we leverage sport for political and societal um, returns. I loathe it. I don't agree with it. I don't think it should be utilised for that. Sport wasn't built for that. Is but that I not do, what Saudi Arabia doing? But I do, Segan. Is that not what Saudi Arabia doing? But that's doing? the allegation. The allegation, and it's steeped in a belief system that we have because it suits the argument, that their sole reason is that they are creating, don't look over here, look over there. Image washing. We, we call it sports washing, but it's repositioning the imaging of Saudi Arabia. There could also be the other two sides of the argument that are part of it, which we discount from the equation, that ultimately they want to be they want to compete in sport because why shouldn't they? They're a region that understands the value of sport. And also they understand the economic value of being able to have access through sport to influential opportunities. We I mean I'm sure that Amnesty International used Twitter. I'm surprised it didn't boycott it given the fact that there was a heart, huge proportion of Saudi money behind Twitter in the first place. If we look at the ownership models of uh, a huge amount of institutions and businesses in this country, they are, if you read The Guardian, you're, you're reading a newspaper that's owned by uh, Middle Eastern money. So there's a raft of different places and spaces that we can make these points in. And I think it's unrealistic, unnecessary and unachievable to expect sports stars to go over to, to countries where they've already accepted the principles of going to play there or work there and then expect them to be envoys for your message. That's your job at Amnesty International. That's what you do. Stephen, what, what would you say to, to, to that sort of idea? Well, that... yeah, there's a few different points there. First of all, we, we don't, we're not calling on anyone to boycott it. There's no boycott going on here. We're raising issues that, that, that we're calling on. You know, if Saudi Arabia... I didn't tell you were boycotting sports, anything. Yeah, you know, we're, if Saudi Arabia is, is using sports uh, for political ends, and that can be geopolitical, it can be commercial, it can be domestic. There are many reasons. Absolutely, sport, you know, sports washing is one of them. Uh, but there are other reasons too. There's no doubt about that. If they're going to use sports for those ends, then we we should also be using sports to raise important human rights issues. I don't think you can separate sports and human rights. I don't think that's what fans want anymore. I don't think that's what players want anymore. And it's what not what we should be expecting of a global business that is worth you know billions and billions of pounds. You know, so so of course that's our job. We will we will raise these human rights issues. We will continue to do so. We'll remind sports bodies of their responsibilities. For example, if FIFA is going to host a World Cup in any country, it should be looking at human rights criteria. That, that's a corporate responsibility it should have. But players and managers who are going to Saudi Arabia, as I said, they are free to make that choice and they have every right to make that choice, you know. Um, but they should should be aware of the broader project that they're, they're part of. They should not be captured by it. You know, if Stephen Jarrod becomes an ambassador for the country, which may or may not, he should he should be in his mind about what, what role he's playing in that broader narrative about Saudi Arabia and really whether it's telling a truthful story about the country. Because there are... Uh, big changes in sport in Saudi Arabia. It is a country that loves football. It is a country with a real football history. It's also a government which has increased repression over the last five, six years from a very terrible base. It last year gave a, a woman 34 years in prison for tweeting. Um, it's, uh, it, you know, it, it executed 196 people last year. These are both part of the story. And I think it's, part, it's our job to tell, tell that part of the story and will. But we also think it is important for others to do so who have a major platform. Does the influx of sports stars, well-known sports stars and celebrities going to play in Saudi Arabia, 
actually help give you a platform to raise those questions? That's my point. It does. I mean, in, in a sense, that you know, the reason I'm on this show is, is because because of this happened, right? I mean, that is part of it. And we've always said that the, the most important thing, that one of the most important ways to prevent sports washing is to keep talking about it. Now, the problem is that there's often a sort of peak of attention around a certain purchase of Newcastle or Live Golf or something else. But then over time, that attention disappears. We don't talk a lot about the, the human rights record of the UAE government in relation to Man City. We do a bit but not as much as you know would have been uh, 10 years ago or, or longer when that, when that purchase um, happened. And, and so there's a danger that, the, that it becomes normalised. And so it's really important that we keep having these discussions. We keep talking about it. And that's, a, that's our role. That's your role. It's, and it can be a role of those involved in the sport as well. But it has to be sustained. And, and, that, and that's, that, But that, there's always this really debate, and I'm not, I'm not playing, I, I am and I'm not playing devil's advocate in this conversation. It's a supposition on everybody's part because the idea that the Saudis or the UAE, UAE or the Qataris give the slightest fig about the Western world, think about their cultural values, is something you leap upon and suggest that sports is being used to legitimise them. The alternate argument is, is that actually what they're trying to do with sport is leverage access, not acceptance, not about creating a, a diversionary tactic of suggesting that don't look at our human rights issues, don't look at our LGBTQ approach, which I do believe that every society should evolve at its own pace because when we won the World Cup 55 years ago, gay marriage wasn't allowed in this country. So every country evolves at a different pace. But your preferred narrative is to suggest solely the motivation for sport. And you may be right, but it's a narrative that you don't know to be factual. It's a, a narrative that you alight upon is that the reason why they want sport is to make sure that no one looks about the way their society operates. And yet when you spend time in those countries, they couldn't give a fig about what the Western world thinks about how they conduct their society. What they want to use sport for potentially is access and influence to industrial opportunities so they don't just depend upon what's underneath their sand. It gives them an opportunity to be a hub. Now, we can have resistance to that by saying we don't like their societies, we're not going to do business with them. Then we're going to have to pull, about, pull apart the entire structure of commercial opportunities in this country and the nature of how our governments deal with countries of those, of those particular persuasion ad infinitum. That's, I mean, that's actually not what I'm, what I'm saying. Um... Well, you have. You've made the point about image washing and you've suggested that the image washing is particularly predicated on the fact that there's human rights issues inside those countries uh, what i've said is is it's one motivation i mean none of us are need there are business opportunities here there are geopolitical reasons you know for example qatar i would not say the world cup was not a sports washing exercise because it was largely about qatar's geo geopolitical aims about being safe and secure in, in a world where it was surrounded by by much bigger countries and, and, and existing as a country it, it can be one of, but there were many other, you know, with human rights, and actually the World Cup shone a light on many of those human rights issues. You know, There are different motivations. Many things can be true at the same time. But we do know that sport, the amount of money put into sport is also about bringing Saudi Arabia out to the world, which in terms of normalizes its reputation, trying to salvage its reputation after, if you remember, not, not that many years ago, it was essentially a pariah state. Um, after the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. There's been an incredible rehabilitation then, which is partly about well, the fact that everyone needs their oil, but it's also about how much it invests in, 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 in cultural assets, in sport. And that's part of a, a vision that they've got. These things are not mutually exclusive. And I think our message is, you now Saudi Arabia wants to be a global leader um, in industry, in culture, in sport. It can do so, but it has to come hand in hand with reform uh, at a domestic level as well. And that means 
putting an end to the exploitation of migrant workers. It means putting an end to discrimination against women and LGBT communities. And it means, it means allowing freedom for political activists, for journalists to do their job, to criticize the government and to, and to be able to do so without being thrown into prison. Welcome to the Coliseum of Confrontation. Outspoken with White and Jordan. Thanks for listening to Outspoken with White and Jordan. Please leave a review wherever you get your podcast. We'll be back tomorrow to bring you the best of the show. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. This Mother's Day, treat mom to healthy, glowing skin with Osea's limited edition skincare sets. Osea has been making clean, seaweed-infused products for nearly 30 years. Their advanced eye care duo brightens and firms skin around your eyes, while the Golden Glow Body Trio nourishes and smooths skin all over. Go to oseamalibu.com and use code MOM for 10% off your first order site-wide.